Welcome to the Nihongo Project. Today, joining us, we have Rain from the United States, a master's student in East Asian Studies at Stanford University. So glad you could join me today. I first just want to start off with, um, if you're able to tell us a little bit about what we refer to the discipline of digital humanities, as well as East Asian Studies, to provide a little bit of a background. So first, with digital humanities, it is essentially studying the human condition and rather being limited to the physical world and the, phys and the tools of the physical world, we utilize digital tools and digital materials to understand this. So an example from, let's say, history of maps would be having the map be digitized and then you and then having other maps of the same region be digitized and creating a multi-layering effect to show someone how a region has changed. Um, with myself, with what I do called manga studies, and then I'll define what manga studies is. So for manga studies, it is, or rather, you said East Asian studies, sorry. Um, so for East Asian studies, it is pretty much very broadly just studying East Asia. And then what is East Asia is actually one of the questions in the discipline, usually referring to the Korean Peninsula. So both North and South Korea, Japan, China, and Taiwan. But in certain um, interpretations, it can expand to include Vietnam, as well as overseas Chinese in Singapore and other parts of the world. And so it's essentially studying anything at all that's going on in this region or anything at all going on in this region, which is affecting other regions of the world. So that's where manga studies actually does come in. Wonderful uh, explanation there. And yeah, definitely, I, I think I've seen a, a quite a few interpretations you know, Vietnam being one of them where, depending on um, who you're asking, they may classify more as um, a country within East Asia versus Southeast Asia. So uh, yeah, it's, it's quite actually interesting to see that even those definitions do, uh, do vary. And um, so first, what is manga generally speaking? So what is it actually? And what is the basic fundamentals of manga? Manga just means um, some form of sequential art, so comics coming from Japan. Um, uh, another way to look at manga is through the art style of manga. So just picture your favorite anime or manga and the distinct art style used. And then we have artists utilizing that art style in their own work outside Japan. And then the question becomes if that is manga as well. Um, and then if we think about categorizing manga within the framework of history, we can view manga as a continuation of ancient picture schools in Japan, which were also a form of sequential art where people read images right to left, and that's what moved the narrative along. So while we have we flip through pages for manga nowadays, one way to approach it is just another a a piece of a long line of work that began with scrolls. Oh, perfect, and so. When we think about manga, I think oftentimes we think about, at least from the general public perspective, definitely it's from Japan. Um, so, what? Um, so, is manga only from Japan, or can manga be from a variety of other countries? I would say that manga can definitely come from other countries. Um, specifically, I'm thinking about a campaign that Tokyo Pop did in the early 2000s, where they recruited artists from across North America to submit their manga. And what categorized it as manga was again the art style. And the another, and within the art style, it isn't just how we draw the characters and the setting and so forth, but how we tell the story and present it within those pages. So, for example, um, choosing to make the story be read right to left would be another characteristic of trying to copy or 
not really copy, but be influenced by this manga style. Um, so while for my work, manga is really coming from Japan because that is what I study, I would definitely make the argument we have things like Canadian or American manga. Oh, wow. Okay. That's very interesting. I think that's something that, you know, a lot of people that are interested in Japanese culture or even the literature may not know that manga could comprise of other um, series that are not necessarily, you know, from, from Japan. And uh, well, how aware do you think the general public is about, about manga itself? So this is people that are outside of the manga industry, not necessarily studying um, in academic streams of East Asian uh, studies or even history, for instance. So how well do you think the general public at large um, you know, is aware of manga? I think they're quite well aware of it. I think um, presently we're having a bit of a boom with Western comics and so forth in North America. But before that, manga was pretty much the dominant player in the market. Um, so we have, uh, we also have to, you know, this is the point where you have to join manga with anime because anime is usually an adaptation of a manga. And I think most Americans are very familiar with anime. And as a result, they become more familiar with manga. Um, so I think that while I, while sadly not all Americans and not all Canadians have read manga, I think they do know what it is. And just kind of going back to that point, um, again, as an American, there's a long history of comic books. Uh, and even in certain uh, social circles, it's very prominent. Um, we see it's actually kind of um, the resurgence of, of, of geek culture where uh, certain um, comic books are very, they're kind of um, the mainstay or they've become very popular. And uh, well, from your perspective, what are some of the uh, key differences and similarities of, let's say, your typical American comic book and a manga series? Well, pertaining to my research, one of the biggest difference is how it is produced in terms of what does it physically look like. Um, so manga is usually about the same size as a paperback book, and it is read right to left. So the images, you read them right to left, right? And um, that is very, and also within this paperback book, there are about 150 pages. So there's multiple chapters in this. We have manga magazines, but those are almost never translated to English, so I'm going to leave that out of the discussion. But that's essentially manga is like a book. Um, but with Western comics, they're more serialized, so they're released issue by issue and then bound into trade paperbacks. But most importantly is that they're physically sized different. I'm trying to remember the exact dimensions, and I don't. But um, essentially, if you hold a Western comic next to a manga, even if you don't are unable to read the text or for some reason um, interpret the images well to, to see the aesthetical differences, you'll physically see that the sizing is different. And another distinction between manga and anime besides things like size and page count and different ideas of serialization is the use of colored pages. So um, with Western comics, we often have every page be colored, especially if it's something produced by Marvel and falls under that generic um, superhero genre. But with manga, colored pages is much more limited. I am sure there exists manga that has all colored pages for the whole series, but it's very uncommon. Usually with manga, it is really only the cover and the title page. And this title page could be the title page for the whole individual volume or the title page for the volume as well as each chapter that are colored. And instead, they use a black and white gradient. 
So we now begin to enter the visual differences. One thing I did not mention though is story. So this is the part of where I think manga and Western comics actually have a lot of similarity. Um, they tell all these different types of stories. And um, if there's, a, there's superheroes in comics, we usually think of superheroes coming from North America, but there's superheroes in manga too. And in the same way we have magical girls in manga, you can find these magical girls in a Marvel work as well. So even though there's a lot of tangible differences in terms of narrative, there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's one thing that to me, it strikes me as very interesting about um, the, the use of color. Uh, like I could pick up any manga and it's going to be pretty much black and white with some grays, like a gradient. Um, and uh, something that I also thought about was just comic books tend to be almost always in color. Um, if they're available in print, you order them directly, you know, like a DC or Marvel comic book, they'll, they'll tend to be in, in uh, full color, which is also um, a key difference. But I think you're right because it's very... Um, the comic books tend to be a lot shorter. So perhaps in the end, the cost is about similar. I don't know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but maybe there's a certain reason why manga is predominantly grayscale, black and white, versus you know the comic books being in, in full color. And uh, again, so being a Canadian, I do remember very well uh, growing up, some pop, uh, watching some popular series, Pokemon, everyone knows it's still ongoing. Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z, that's kind of got a, a restart as well. Card Captors, Digimon, you know, just a few of the series that I grew up watching. Uh, and my wife as well, she's watched shows like Doraemon uh, when she was younger, living in Indonesia. So with this massive global reach that that anime has, and in some cases it localized or, or, or not, um, so how accessible has the manga been during your research? Is it accessible? Um, have you found maybe that some of the selected anime series are more widely accessible than their manga counterparts? So, um, it's going to take me a bit to answer this and yeah. digest this question. So, I'm going to speak on this accessibility in general of these materials and then talk about how it pertains to my own research, or at least try to answer the question to do so. Um, so, with manga and anime, it is much more accessible today than I think it has ever been in North America, but also across Southeast Asia and Latin America. Um, those are the regions that I'm most familiar with. I know very little about the European market. Um, so with anime, we have multiple streaming platforms. Popular ones are Crunchyroll that make anime accessible. So with your life's um, lived experience, you most likely watched it on the TV. Um, so you didn't have, there was no streaming platform back then, right? And with your lived experience, it was also watching it on TV. And we still have anime broadcasting on the TV throughout North America, Latin America, and Southeast Asia. But through to the wise of streaming platforms and lessening the digital divide and making it possible to access high-speed internet to, that can support these streaming platforms, you're getting fans seeing things officially, legally, and easier than it has ever been. So with terms of unofficial platforms, that distribution hasn't been as effective within the last um, 20 years, I would say. Obviously, the internet and, and the availability of high-speed internet has affected things but with the really what's becoming the dominance of official channels it's just making anime so much more accessible but there's a second 
story going on here that really applies to manga. So I'm going to go back to the Crunchyroll example because it's nice to talk about. So Crunchyroll also has manga. And what's interesting here um, is two things. First, that it's available outside North America. So you're able to access manga and Crunchyroll if you're in Latin America, for example. And I'm sort of clarify this. With Crunchyroll, the reason why it has this global reach is because it, it uh, subtitles and it produces subtitles in multiple languages like English, Spanish, Russian, and so forth. So that makes it much more accessible linguistically than um, having to wait for your country to um, localize it in the local language or something. Crunchyroll already, already did that. So with manga, um, you're able to access digital manga easily through a platform like Crunchyroll. And you're also able to do something, and this is more new, with the rise of scientist publication, where you can read the newest chapter. So this is where I can connect my own research a bit more. So I particularly work with Car Capture Sakura. And recently, Car Capture Sakura became available through Crunchyroll. So we just had a chapter come out yesterday. You can read it on Crunchyroll. That was the same exact time it came out in Japan. That is really, to me, as someone who's been a fan and as a researcher, that's amazing to have a, a work come out in Japan and have it accessible to people outside Japan more or less at the same time and also in various languages. So for car capture software in particular, with Crunchyroll, I know it's available in English, but you can also read the car capture software sequel in Spanish, Portuguese, Chinese, I think that's all of them, through a, another digital platform called Platfans. And this is officially published by Kudansha. So this just, there's much more access through digital platforms than there have been when we were limited to using physical materials. Yeah. And uh, yeah, absolutely. I think because more and more regions of the world are developing in a way that the infrastructure is being rapidly uh, invested in and you're seeing fiber optic cables being laid and the general public having access uh, to fiber optic cables and internet that's a lot faster than than dial-up used to be and and i know in many countries your mobile service so that 3g or 4g lte connection that is now fast enough for you to actually stream uh some of these you know anime series and even uh it, it might be one's only hotspot into the internet so if they're using like an lte network which is fast enough it's definitely um and more people are you know, getting into smartphones and, and that sort of thing. So it's definitely, uh, uh, I think, also become more widely accessible through maybe some of those means. Um, so for now, let's shift the, the discourse and the conversation a little bit to the to manga localization and domestication uh, within the U.S. So starting off, we talk about that term. So what is localization? Are you able to give us kind of a, a nice, neat definition of localization? I think um, previously, before we had things like scientist publication and scientist um, subtitling and so forth, we were really thinking about how can we bring this work to, to a place outside Japan? And when we do that, how do we make it playable for the local audience? So one example of that is simply translating it into English or whatever the language is of the area it's coming to. That's usually, what, that's usually when people think about localization, I think that's kind of where they stop. They think, okay, we translated the text to English for done. That doesn't work for manga because um, manga is, it's an entire text. It has images, it has notes, it has cultural references that may not be known to the audience in North America. If we're thinking about this from a Japanese, North American localization, right? So 
that's when you get to a long, long history of American publishers, sometimes joint Japanese American publishers, publishing manga in a way that it physically does not look the way it does today. So they used to actually publish it in a what we call floppy comic format, which is the same format we use for something like Marvel. So they would cut it up, they would make it be read left to right, not right to left, and they would release it chapter by chapter. And that looked very different than manga is today and very different than manga looks like in Japan, but they're thinking, well, when we localize this, we want to tell people it's comics, so we're going to put it in this comic packaging and hopefully they'll buy it, right? That didn't work out. <laughs> um, so um, they, they tried different methods to localize manga. And in 2002, we have Tokyo Pop, which does its 100% authentic manga campaign, where they stopped trying to put it into the swapping comic format. They stopped flipping the pages to left to right. Rather, they make it right to left, and they have it be more or less the same size as a Japanese manga volume. And additionally to this, they, um, in this localization process, this new localization process, they include things like honorifics and cultural notes, and they no longer edit out the Japanese katakana sound effects and so forth. So oh, that onomatopoeia. Yes, that is usually. Yeah, and so now when we localize manga, it's much more. It's very different than it used to be, and it's much more closer to Japan. But really, what I want to end with here is that localization kind of was like it started in Japan. There's an endpoint for the work, and then it starts up again in, in North America when they start um, adapting the work. For North American audiences, but we have signed publication occurring, so works are being published and made available at the exact same time and often through the same medium. So an example of that would be the Shonen Jump Plus platform, which allows users from around the world to access the Shonen Jump manga magazine in English or Japanese. If um, in terms of the user experience of that website, you're not seeing many differences between the Japanese user experience and the North American user experience because it is the text that is not being, is the, the text is being translated, but they still have the same platform. So in that case, we get what is localization when the publisher is just really translating their website. Right. And um, I, actually, I think Shonen Jump is still the most popular. Um, I don't know, are they a publisher or kind of a series um, of, of different collections that they have under their branding? Um, I still think that's probably the most popular um, in, in Canada, perhaps North America as well, um, because they've covered very famous, um, the, well, the manga uh, text of very famous anime. And um, we've all, I think, seen a, an anime that was from the, the Shonen Jump um, domain, I guess I could say. And um, so is there actually kind of a, a, a basic timeline of when manga first emerged you know, in Japan itself, and then maybe up until the localization of the very first manga series or thereabouts in the United States. So kind of from Japan up until it arrived in the U.S. So with manga, um, like I said, we can make it a very early start date by connecting it to ancient picture schools. Another start date of manga is, and this is a more, much more debated, is thinking back of Hokusai manga, which is a, a collection of sketches that Hokusai produced and he titled it manga. Um, this was done in the late 19th century. So was that manga? Well, it looked, it, there's sequential art, but it looks very different than the manga that we have today, the Narasa manga that you buy at the store in Japan or North America. So really I would 
say, we can start with the Hoxai manga, we start with picture schools, but I think the biggest thing was the advent of manga magazines that occurred in the early 20th century. When you started having these telephone book size um, anthologies of various different comic book like series. And so with manga coming to the America, um, there was, I think, two periods of time that I want to mention here. Um, so like I mentioned, when manga came to America in the 1990s, so when Sailor Moon was first published in English in 1998, it looked like a Marvel comic. Again, it was a thin, floppy comic form, right? Um, and this is where I focus my research. But if we go back to actually 1962, we have a publisher called Gold Key, which is an American publisher. And Gold Key lasts until 1984. Their focus is mostly North American comics, but they do publish Astro Boy. And when they publish Astro Boy, something interesting happens. Um, they change the photos, they change the art, the illustration. That's interesting. And yeah, so it's, it, they change it so much that I'm not sure if I recall it, Mom. But that's so the next date we have to think about is 1978 when Barefoot Gen is brought over to North America and they translate it, but they do not alter the images. So it's much more closer to the original work. But I think the most important date for really manga is actually in North, in North America is 1986 when Viz is founded. So in 1987, Viz begins publishing manga. And it's founded as a joint venture between Shogaku Khan and American investors. So that's when you really, I think, bring manga to America. You bring it in a way where you're trying to make it remain manga and so forth in a way that publishers like Gold Key, which we're not doing. And that's, uh, that's Viz Media, right, I think? Is that... Yes, Viz. Okay. Um, they're still around, I think. Right? Yep, they're still the major <laughs> publisher of manga, and that's really why I wanted to bring that up, because mm -hmm. they, if you like both, though, because you watch Naruto, they're the ones who publish it. And so, yeah. And so, well, when we go to localization of, of manga, so is it really the highly successful ones and uh, series, uh, the ones that garner a lot of attention that actually do end up getting localized or you know, maybe some that are not so popular still get localized? So let's start with the first one that came, right? Barefoot Gen. Mm -hmm. um, I think while Barefoot Gen is very popular, it's more Unitarian because it handles very difficult aspects of the war. Um, it isn't popular in the same since Sailor Moon was popular, but Sailor Moon was popular, so it came here. Um, so I think when we look at manga early on in North America, we're bringing things that are either important for a cultural or educational purpose, or we're bringing things that are simply popular and hopefully will make us money. And also if there's an anime on TV, because right. this is very important for Sailor Moon with the magazines I'm looking at, they reference the TV show in the comic in the very first issues that are coming to North America. Mm -hmm. So they're saying, I'm so happy you like the anime, now watch the comic. <laughs> now read the comic. Now read the comic. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. But today, we don't really have that because mm -hmm. with unofficial translation that was extremely common and people were accessing manga that way in the early 2000s, the, it kind of shifted and it became a lot more fan-driven, I think, in terms of acquisition and what they would publish. But also with semi-publication, for example, with the Shonen Jump Plus platform, we're having things come into English just because it's in the magazine. They're, it's like we're trans, we're bringing this entire magazine anthology over to America, 
So it doesn't matter if it's popular or not. Yet this is a new series. We have this series might just be coming out today in both Japan and North America. There's no idea of popularity. It's just hopefully it will work out because Shonen Jump was willing to publish it. Right. So in that case, it's mostly you know the case of just we're we're gonna um, I don't know if syndication is the right word, but we're gonna have them both in both markets, the North American um, and the Japanese market. And well, I guess event, in, in that case, it, it wouldn't really matter so much if it's popular because there, if there's a wide enough appeal, and I mean, Shonen Jump is a pretty big name, people are still gonna pick it up, right? So. Yeah, I also want to mention here um, uh, something that's very common if you've ever attended an anime convention and gone to the, um, the presentations the publishers put out. If you want a comic officially translated, ask for it. That fan-driven acquisition is still a thing. So um, even though you may not see what you want in English yet or whatever your local language is, if you ask for it from the publisher, you might see it soon. Well, that's interesting. That's I learned something new. <laughs> so ask for it in English or uh, whatever language because these conventions, I mean, maybe not this year because, for instance, Anime North here in Toronto got canceled, but uh, maybe next year they're going to be running uh, more of these conventions. And so this one might be a little bit of a stretch, mm -hmm. but are there any manga series that might have been localized into English in general, but not for the American market? So maybe there was a manga that was localized into English for Canada or Australia or something along the lines, but never actually appeared officially in the United States? Yes, I know there are ones. I can't think of anything on top of my head, but especially because um, with the Canadian market in particular, um, from my understanding as not a Canadian son who doesn't do Canadian studies, is that in Canada, you really have two major markets. You have the French language market and the English language market. And the French language market is influenced by what's going on in France. And as a result, you might get a manga that was published in France come over to Quebec and it's never brought into English. It was only brought over in French. Um, so you have that going on in Canada. And the same thing where it might be available in English, but it might not be available in French, or if it is available in French, it's in um, the French spoken in French, rather than in Quebecois. I totally slaughtered that word. <laughs> and That's so, quite right. Yeah. So, um, but one, one thing I do, I have seen, um, is that we have anime, um, uh, anime made available in the UK that is not brought over to the North American market. So we have to import those. But I think yeah. due to the way that anime is manga is done now, um, it's much more global that is becoming less common. Oh, okay. So that's, uh, yeah, again, one of those questions that is kind of out there. And, and it's, it's interesting because then I guess the question becomes, well, if it is available in, let's say, English, um, and it's available in like Australia or Canada, then why isn't it brought into the U.S., right? And again, perhaps some of it has to do with, I know licensing is still a big thing with mm -hmm. manga yeah. and anime in general. So it has to be licensed. So it could also just be licensing issues or for some reason, this manga became very popular in Australia. Again, it just never came over. Um, but yeah, the, the thing about Quebec and the French language um, mangas that might actually hit Quebec versus that manga just never gets translated into English. It's very, very possible. Uh, and very likely, <laughs> given that it is, you know, uh, the official, one of the official languages here. And so when we talk about manga and, um, and you know, your work, um, we have to talk about 
archives, right? So I think it's uh, uh, a very interesting point about archives here. And so do do manga archives exist like they do in for other uh, in the United States? Okay, so in the United States, I will give a call out to the Ohio State University, which has the best manga collection in North America. And so with them, they, ha they have so much more materials, but it's interesting because they not only need to select the Japanese language materials, but they also need to select the various versions of Sailor Moon or car capture software that has been published and republished over the years. So within North America, the collection development needs of what we can call an Adamir Monger archive, or most much more likely an Adamir Monger collection, is very different. Um, Beyond the Ohio State University, um, a few universities might buy manga primary for academic reasons. Mm -hmm. So that is, they want to serve either faculty or students who are using it either in their classes or in their research. It might be because the student or the faculty member can cross the material, or because they know that there's going to be a class on, let's say, anime and religion, or rather religion and anime, and they need to have materials to help the professor actually teach it to the students and the students do research on it. So we have those collections. Um, so there's a few different ways to access anime and manga, but I do want to say, while as an academic, I think you'd usually think of me staying in the academic library and doing all my work there, um, right. the public libraries of North America in both Canada and the United States have an excellent manga collection. Um, they have it in both Japanese and English. Um, yeah, so particularly if we, if we go hyper-local, um, with the San Francisco Public Library, they have the Western Edition branch, which is a branch of their, just, which is a branch devoted to Japanese language, Russian language, English language materials. And of course they're going to have manga there because kids read manga and kids go to that library. So when I think about like getting manga for my work, I have to think about, okay, what can I get at my university? What can I find online? What can I get? from amazon.co.jp, which is my favorite website, and what can I get from going to the public library? Because when I really want to look at older stuff, stuff in the 90s, that might be available at the public library. And uh, so just one quick little add-on um, that I have. So a lot of these, um, so what I've noticed just in my kind of brief travels in Japan is that bookstores are still relatively common. Maybe it's just a Tokyo thing, um, oh, I don't know if it's because there's there's some things that, you know, I, I say, I didn't know this about Japan. And then I talk to other Japanese folks and they say, that's a Tokyo specific thing or the region that you're talking about. So I'm curious, the bookstores um, and not just just not just manga, though, but in, in general, they tend to have them um, more, you know, frequently. I, I run into them more often. Versus in Canada, where, you know, the concern has been a lot of independent publishers are going out of business. A lot of your local bookstores or your chapters or Indigo are closing down their stores. And these are large commercial chains. Um, so I was kind of surprised to see that small local chains are still, you know, uh, uh, relatively common in, in, in Tokyo. Um, and with the manga archives, so if, so for instance, Ohio State University has this collection, right? Um, and they're both, so what if there was no English language version? Would they just keep the Japanese version just to include in the collection or archive? Or would they have somebody maybe localize it? 
Yeah, so um, in terms of that, um, let's picture a work that's pretty common right now. Um, I believe Golden Kamui did not have Siamese publication. So when Golden Kamui first got popular and got awards and so forth, the Ohio State University, and really I should be more broad here, a university that collects manga may have purchased it because it won this award. It features Ainu characters. Um, so-and-so asked for it to include it in their lecture next week. Or not next week, maybe too soon, maybe next month. But um, maybe that was yes. all reason for them to purchase it in Japanese. Oh. And um, they, rather than purchasing it in English. And those really, those are kind of the same reason why they purchase it in English too. Like who, when the person is, when a, when a patron is requesting the work, they could be requesting it in Japanese or English, but their motivations may be very much the same. They say, right. I have a research need. I want to look at this work. I want to teach with this work. I'm interested in this work. I think it looks fun. Or it got us a word. Those, those things will only change regardless of the language you're applying. And now, in terms of a library requesting a work be published into English, um, I don't think they would really do that. What we do have, and this is a bit outside the world of manga, is that um, with, for example, with UCSF, they have a really cool collection of UA um, that feature diseases and pandemics and so forth and medical issues um, in Japan from the Edo group. And they have a digital exhibit of these works with a lot of it translated into English because they're, you know, they're images. So you can read a lot of it without having to read the text. So they translate the title and the other information. So it's accessible to people in both Japanese and English. So there is, Libraries sometimes do that type of translation with recording an item, but we usually, I would feel, not request a private publisher to translate something. We probably just translate a little teeny bit to make it accessible in terms of findability instead. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, I guess if, if some, you know, random individual from the middle of nowhere uh, wrote this email to, to a Japanese publisher, they probably wouldn't localize the the manga just yet, uh, but I guess if there's enough demand for it, uh, it will, you know, eventually get get uh, localized. Or it's if it's super popular, I'm sure that 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 equation kind of gets into their minds to say, should we uh, localize this into English or any other language, for instance? And so for these localized versions of the manga, are the publishers the same? You can't touch on this as the original Japanese publisher, or is it? predominantly going to be like US-based publishers partnering with them or one publisher, the Japanese publisher does the Japanese market and then for English, uh, for US, Canada, uh, like an American publisher will, will, will do the uh, uh, localized version here. How does that usually work out? Mm -hmm. um, it really depends on what is being brought over. Um, mm -hmm. So where was it published in Japan? What manga magazine was it published in? Um, in terms of rights, it belongs to the person who created it, not the publisher. But I'm going to give an example of Kartesha Soccer to explain how this depends can my, this depends answer can even be within one single series. So when Kartesha Soccer was first published in 1999 in North America, um, it was published by Mix Entertainment. Mix Entertainment was an American company. Um, it's republished when, when Mixed Entertainment becomes Tokyo Pop. Again, it's an American company. There's no Japanese ownership. In 2010, Dark Horse Comics, based in Oregon, publishes it again. And then we have 
um, a little bit after that, uh, while this is going on, it's being published in Japan, right? And it's being republished in Japan. And all this is by Kodansha, one single company in Japan doing this. But in America, it keeps on changing, right? And the next time that Car Capture Sakura becomes available in English, it is not an American company that does it, but rather a Japanese company or an American subsidy of a Japanese company called Kodansha Comics USA. So they published the collector's edition of Park Capture Sakura a couple of years ago. And so that's where it gets a bit blurry because um, they're based in New York, they're, but they're a subsidy of the Japanese company and so forth. Um, and then with the sequel for Card Capture Software, Fair Card, that has only had in one interpretation, one publisher around it. Well, Kodansha. Kodansha Comics USA makes it available throughout North America, and then Kodansha itself makes it available throughout Japan. But we have other works that are being picked up and they're being handled differently. So um, if you think about Moto Hagio and her work, they're being published by Fantagraphics which is a small comic publisher based in Seattle. So, real, and I haven't even mentioned the Kawaii Mozambique Viz with Sogaku kind of situation now having co-ownership of the company. Um, so it's just really dependent on, I guess, where the work starts. Um, and if that company maybe has an American subsidy like Kodansha does, they probably will be the one handling it, but it really, I think I think it's a lot more complicated than that. I wish I understood it better. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it already sounds fairly complicated right yeah. now. Uh, again, even within the same series, that's that's quite uh, that's quite uh, a, a joyride of, of a read to have to go through that all that history and and figure out who actually is the publisher of this particular uh, manga, even if it's the same series. So that's very um, interesting, and I think because companies and corporations in general, which ultimately are the ones doing a lot of the publishing, because they're so transnational, it's hard to kind of even pinpoint their own location um, sometimes. So it, because they might have head offices or regional offices in various cities around the world. So definitely would get very uh, complicated. So in the US, you might have heard of something called the Big Five, though. The Big Five publishers of books, also textbooks. <laughs> in some cases. Um, so is there something like that in, in Japan? Like, are there these giant mega publishing houses um, in Japan that, that publish manga? I'm actually going to get a term for you. If you can wait a moment for me to look it up. So I mentioned Kodansha. They're definitely a humongous player, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I wanted to be very specific. Okay, here we go. So in Japan, we have something called the Hitotsubashi Group. The Hitotsubashi Group members include Shogakukan, Suresa, Viz Media. Apparently, they have a minority stake in Crunchyroll and a ton of other companies. So we do have this um, idea of having like these major players who want a very large share of the manga market and publishing a lot of manga. To think that, like, because the amount of manga that Hitsubosu Group publishes would be enormous. Um, the same thing with Kodansha um, in Japan. But we also have um, something called Dojinshi, which is fan-made works. And those are just published by um, fan, uh, what's called Circles at the University. Well, 
Shogakukan is not controlling that at all, or any of the major publishers. It's all um, just self-made works. Um, sometimes they can be a unique story, or sometimes they can be um, pretty much a fan fiction of a, a currently done manga. But beyond these idea of these ideas, we have the, the individual controlling the production, and then the huge company controlling the production, or at least highly influencing it, right? We also have um, digital manga. So you can publish, I think they just closed it with Line, um, but you can publish your manga just on simple apps. You can publish on Fixit, you can go through Webtoon, and you can make it widely available. That's really why we saw the rise of Webtoons in Korea, actually, because of this. So, yeah, I would say that the Japanese market for manga and how it goes about being published either and printed digitally is extremely complicated. And there's big players and small players and that. Um, overall though, those big players are definitely going to control what's going on in terms of story and have an influence on manga globally in a way that, let's say, Dark Horse Comics in the United States cannot do. And yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sure that um... That is also part of the reason why some of the Hmong series do get uh, localized into English, uh, among other languages. I know we tend to focus a lot on English because that's what we uh, are speaking right now. <laughs> Presumably, the ones who are listening are also uh, listening in English, of course. But um, So I'm sure, yeah, there's going to be some big players, some small players. Uh, but it is sounding like it's kind of similar to maybe even your traditional textbook um, publishers where you do have some small players and you have some major, um, maybe not even corporations like conglomerates, just massive uh, companies that are doing a lot of the, a lot of the uh, publications there as well. So what would you say is the impact of localization to individuals who perhaps don't speak Japanese, who might be learning at very early stages, so does that localization improve local accessibility? Um, presumably, if they're interested in the content, it would, but I'm interested on, in hearing your thoughts on this one. I think the localization of anime and manga really dramatically changed, like we can say, geek culture and geek society in North America um, in ways that it's, for some people, it kind of changed like their entire life. They, read manga as a kid and now they go around the world participating in cosplay competitions and they're an excellent streamsist and that's all because the work was translated to English and made accessible to them. So in that way I think anime manga is kind of amazing that it could change not just what you read but what you do in terms of your hobbies and what you do in terms of your skills. Um, so I would say that localizing manga, especially the way manga is localized today, um, but also with Delray. Delray was a publisher who did a great job of localizing manga and giving cultural notes and so forth. I think it makes Japan more accessible to people who are not Japanese. Maybe not, obviously not as much as if you simply go there and visit, but I think it makes it, um, it just makes people more culturally aware. But there's also an image of Japan, an image of things presented in manga that is clearly not Japan. If you go to Japan, you're not going to find Naruto or Pokemon. I tried really hard to find Pokemon. They were not there. <laughs> they only were in stuffy form. And so, like, those, those things are going on. But I think it's, with any media, when it's brought over to another country, that country feels closer. 
and you learn about that other country and you might learn things that you didn't expect. Um, I'm going to turn it very an example from Final Fantasy. In Final Fantasy X, they bow a lot. I've played that game for hours every single day. <laughs> and my body language changed unconsciously because I was seeing stuff. And so you're going to have like really embarrassing individual stories about high school about and like, wait, why am I doing this? And you're also going to have people who have like really cool hobbies or something. And it's all because the work was made available to them. And in that way, I think that um, publishers kind of have a really big thing doing, big thing they have to accomplish and making it accessible while also making it, um, not losing the essence of the original work itself. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's, that's great. I think also the one thing that um, I, I think of, not just when I think about manga or anime, but anything that we see that predominantly we can tie back to a certain culture or region. It, in addition to giving you wider accessibility and awareness, I think that it's also dialectical. So what we see in anime or, or read in, in the manga, yeah, you're right. Perhaps some of it is not necessarily Japanese, let's say, or it's um, more of a over-the-top exaggeration, but it does give you some insight into Japanese culture. And the one thing, um, there's a manga series, uh, Watamote, it has a very long name, uh, which I don't remember off the top of my head, but, you know, when you look at how the houses are, just in general, um, that's very similar, I find, to how they actually look in some parts of Japan. So the traditional houses, how they look, you know, the sliding doors and all of that. Um, so it, it kind of gives you an idea and insight, similar to, I think, how when American TV shows uh, make that uh, make the uh, bridge that gap, go into new markets. They also provide some idea of American culture to to the countries that they you know that they end up in. And for anime, there's this very passionate community that will create new subtitles for episodes. Just very fan driven. Um, for manga, is there? I, I guess both of them kind of get into the realm of of, of uh, intellectual property rights, which I actually kind of work on in health. Uh, but as well-intentioned as they are, let's say, is there anything similar for manga where there's going to be like a fan base, officially or non-officially, that will be very dedicated to just doing the localization without, you know, just doing it themselves and saying, here's the English version? Yes, so it's called scanlation. So process is, um, if it's being published in a manga magazine, um, and the person is lucky enough to live near Kinokuniya, they'll just order the manga magazine to Kinokuniya. Um, Kinokuniya is a chain of Japanese bookstores that have, they're, they're growing massively in America, it makes me very happy. Um, originally it was really just San Francisco and New York and LA, but now you can go to their store in Texas and everything. They have a great um, subscription program where you can order manga magazines, right? Um, so this was before manga magazines were made to go digitally, but, but the idea was you get the manga magazine, you scan it in your house, or you get the manga volume, if, you or if you're not too impatient, and you go scan it, and then you send it to your friend. Your friend knows some Japanese that they took in high school. <laughs> and so your friend um, is able to copy out the language 
um, not translated, but at least like clean up the files and know what to keep and not keep because they can read the text, right? Well, they send it to another friend. This friend is the one who actually knows Japanese and they translate it. And now you have all these multiple files, one of a manga page with all the text, one of the translation, and you send it to a few other people. Maybe one person can do all this. They put it all together. And they put the English text where it's supposed to be, they fit it, and they pick the font that looks nice, and all those things, they clean it up because manga magazine pages are often low quality. So the scan will reflect that. And then they make it available online. And so they might be making it available through a website, but previously it would be through something like torrents or peer-to-peer -peer sharing and so forth. Um, and these people who scan late um, sometimes can do this work extremely fast because um, they would go across, they would assign people in different time zones. So um, this is extremely illegal, but they would get the manga magazine in Japan because they have that one friend in Japan mm -hmm. and they would scan it in Japan and then they would get, send it to the person who can do the rest of the work. Sometimes an individual is able to do all these different steps and I probably skipped a lot that I'm forgetting, um, but often it's a group of people and they're working across different time zones, either because they're online communities and online communities exist across other time zones or because they're specifically trying to get people who can work quickly and are in the next time zone and so forth. Um, so I, from my understanding, I think the scanlation like groups and the animes Subtitling groups are pretty much the same. They have obviously different skill sets, but mm -hmm. um, in terms of how the community exists, they're similar. But what's interesting with scanlation is that it's still going on. And while I described an example of a magazine scanlation, um, we have scanlation of Chinese comics, of Korean comics, of Southeast Asian comics, anything um, that people want. And, or they like, and they want to make it available in their local language, people will get it. So um, while my own work is with officially translated materials and talking about their history and how their publication has changed physically and so forth, and those types of things, um, when I read manga, I might very well be reading through an unofficial source because it isn't available in English, and I feel like reading in Japanese today because it has too many words I don't know. No, I mean, uh, that's a good point. And that's the one thing that always gets me, like how fast some of these, um, you know, scan translations or scanlations can just be, can be out. Like the manga could come out, it could be a brand new series or, or, or a new issue. And then within hours, you have like an English version that's, that's ready to go. Um, now, it, the actual quality, hard to say. I know some are actually borderline professional like it's almost as if this has been officially localized and some of the more um you know some of the more less commonly used languages or languages that are very rare to be bilingual with the with english might be you know a little bit harder to, to get a hold of um but yeah I've, i'm always kind of impressed by what the community can do be it anime or manga and there's there's a there's a there's definitely a passion for it. They, they really do want to make this accessible to their people, their language, um, and, and yeah. Um, I wanted to mention, um, actually, to follow up to this, um, there are times when the scanlation is actually much better than the official translation. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yes. Um, 
in the olden days, it, we we would see that more common, but now that translation is, and localization is improved. But with some works, the person working with it is just so good and has so much cultural knowledge. So I'm actually going to mention the specific work I'm thinking about. It's called A Bride Story, and the mangaka is Kawamori. To translate that, you do not need to know Japanese culture, you need to know Central Asian culture. And I, it's very hard to read in Japanese because it's using transliteration of common terms that we have in Arabic and transliteration of terms in Farsi and so forth. And for someone to work with that when all they work with is, let's say, Holic, which is very based in Japan, it's really hard. So whoever is doing that is doing an excellent job and not only making the manga accessible in English, but making the Central Asian culture presented in that manga accessible as well. Oh yeah, that's that's an excellent example. Um, because like you know, we kind of mentioned previously, localization is not just translate and you're done, right? I mean, I've so I've taken basic Japanese uh, with an amazing professor, Professor Norio Ota. We call him Ota Sensei. Um, I do believe he's the reason that the Japanese language proficiency test happens on our campus of all places. It could happen in Toronto, um, and he's he's an outstanding guy. Um, and one of the things I've learned, you know, in his Japanese course was I learned how to I learned English basically uh, is what I learned because he taught us with this methodology in order for me to teach you Japanese properly linguistically and to understand some of these nuances. First, you have to understand them in English. And now we're going into the, the language side, but I think it's important. We don't learn those nuances when you're a native speaker, right? If you grow up with English or another language, I grew up with a couple other languages you don't know those nuances. So it was great that he was able to teach us that, look, you know, if you want to say something in English or you see something in Japanese, it's not enough that you could just translate it or, or speak it. There's a lot, uh, you know, behind the scenes that comes out often in manga because it has so many cultural references um, with it contained within it. And um, so I, I always think back to those days where he said, it's not just about the translation. And there are some words you just can't translate because there is no equivalent English word. Um, and so again, in, in these circumstances um, of COVID-19, what are some of the challenges that, that, you've, that you've faced, you and your fellow colleagues conducting uh, this type of research because you rely so much on these actual materials that, that you need to obtain? Okay, so for people in general who are relying heavily on library resources and physical library resources, it could be picture schools or it could be comics, but they're used to seeing them in person and, and physically handling them. Um, it is really problematic. So um, Canada has had a much uh, stronger response to the COVID-19 pandemic, so I'm not sure what the situation is for libraries where you are, but here our library is closed for months. And while they were closed, librarians were not even able to like access the materials to process them, which means they just sat there, which is something that could damage the materials. So before the student or the patron even shows up, the, the, on the day that the library opens, they may be unable to access the materials because they found damage, so it needs to be um, fixed at the library or off campus, or it's still in the box and they can't get it. And so that's a humongous issue. Um, because 
that means that it becomes increasingly difficult to do your work in the same way with the labs being shut down if the library is shut down or and for me that is including the public library that can become really difficult so um i'm not sure what other animal studies fans are doing but one thing i did was the moment kino kunia um opened up again was i got a manga magazine subscription myself because i can't wait and i need to access these materials now so i used some of my funding to pay for that and um i think that's what a lot of students are going to have to do um, because they need to get because if it's something where they can't access it at all like schools you need to go to the library um but with comics we can just buy the comic so I'm just going to buy the comic because thankfully I'm working with stuff that I can get. Um, you can get it through importing or something like that. Now, um, I do want to make reference to digital materials. So we have digital manga. Either it was born digital or it was digitized later. Um, and people who are doing anime and manga studies research are able to access those. If you're working with anime, of course, you can also access streaming platforms or you can um, purchase DVDs or whatever it may be or simply download it from an official source. And so there's multiple ways that people were doing it, but there is something that thankfully we were able to access, regardless of the library being a physical, physically somewhere we can go or not, which is our um, digital collections in terms of journals. So anything related to anime and studies, um, scholarly publications and communications, we're able to still access those. Um, but in the broadest scheme of things with students and as we begin the fall with um, many universities, including my own going online for the entire academic year, we get into the question of if we are teaching anime and manga, how do we get students able to access it? Because I'm just gonna give an example. Um, Moto Hagyo's They Were 11 was localized and translated by Viz, I believe in the late 90s. No wait, it was either somewhere in the 1990s, right? And I have that because I borrowed it from the library and I really liked it. And I think if I taught a class, I'd want to include that. I can't because I can't get it from that library anymore. And I can't show it to the students because I can't see them. And so I'll just scan it. And if I scan it, it kind of becomes useless as a teaching tool because the reason why I wanted to show it was I wanted to show an example of manga early in the United States and what that looked like. And so it's like, I guess I can show it in a video, but you could become with all these issues. And you also have to consider students that um, were utilizing our archives and libraries as a place to do their work. And now they no longer have that place. So even if they can, even if there's a way for them to access all these materials, if they don't have a quiet, safe, clean place to use them, it doesn't really matter. And uh, there was something that you mentioned there that is, is very important because um, I do believe that the general public is um, needs to know that libraries are very controlled spaces. There are some very old books that are written on different types of paper that require a constant temperature, and it's it, there's an entire um, like discipline of how do you store materials in an archive for you know, long periods of time. And with libraries closing, the one question that I haven't seen yet online, at least come up passively, was what are we gonna do with our archives? What if there's some material that's lost that 
this is really the only copy or one of the few copies that exist. Um, so I, that's definitely something that should more attention should be paid to. I also wanted to mention something before I forget um, regarding your previous question. Um, we are no, we are unable to access the libraries and archives in Japan. That can oh, be someone okay. setting something fancier, you know, let's say old Buddhist manuscripts that are only available in Japan. They were going to do a whole dissertation on it. It's gone. They can't get there. Wow. And we have people who would come to North America to access materials. Mm -hmm. Maybe be all over. They can't get here. And the same way I can't go to Canada right now. Um, so <laughs> that's a tremendous issue. And it is causing people to change their dissertation or their thesis. My own work was changed. Like if I can't access materials in Japan, I have to rely and push my thesis being more American focused, for example. Yeah, and that definitely can even change the, the trajectory of of the final paper, dissertation, or thesis. I mean, it, it's it's a big shift. And sometimes there's other ramifications. You've got to switch up your committee or your supervisor or advisor. It becomes very you know problematic. And uh, yeah, that's something that's affecting a lot of disciplines, uh, unfortunately, um, at the moment. And I mean, hopefully, as we go through this pandemic, things will get a little bit easier. We'll be able to open up more a little bit. Uh, once it's safe to do so and you know hopefully that this condition we do get a vaccine but that's a whole other topic as well uh, in of itself and now that we've been kind of disrupted globally previously we were more connected right we the idea of this global village so uh, what are your thoughts on how our increased connectedness um, the idea of that global village has changed how manga is, you know, bought, stored, read, shared, etc. I think we're really heavily relying on digital manga, digitized manga, anything than we were before. And I think that um, one interesting thing that I hope someone wrote a paper about me is, what about anime on Netflix? Um, before the pandemic, I did not really, I knew, of course, I knew Netflix on anime, occasionally larger, but I was mostly looking at Crunchyroll or just buying the DVDs or something like that. But because I'm home, I'm looking at other channels. So Netflix has been releasing more and more anime. And so that means how we communicate, how we enjoy anime chains. So I'm bringing up Netflix in particular because you can have a Netflix watch party. And you can all watch the anime virtually together. Before the pandemic, why would I do that? I'd invite people over to my house to watch it. You know, that would be the big thing. Come to my house. I have this, I have this DVD. Um, come to my house. Um, I have this subscription to Funimation. Um, so let's go hang out, right? And that changed. And I think, um, I also would be curious how this affected like unofficial localization. And right. if people, because with unofficial localization, they were working from home already. But official localization was working in the office. Or well, at least a lot of their work was being done in offices. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, in terms of concrete things, I can say we are seeing anime and manga be delayed. Mm. Um, specifically with anime, where it was supposed to be released on such and such a date, but now it's delayed. Or the movie was going to be released, but at that time, theaters were closed in Japan, so they wanted to release it later. And so um, that's affecting things quite globally. 
And then we have another thing that's going on with the pandemic's effects on conventions. Mm-hmm. So we can, I don't know when we're going to have Anime Expo again. Um, if I want to catch year, maybe. I go to Anime <laughs> Expo. Because <laughs> it's, you always, because we have this joke in the anime, like, thank you to do that. You get sick from conventions. It's right. just a thing. You're going to come home sick. It's just what happens. <laughs> we can't do that anymore. And so at these conventions, you not only had people like engaging with their hobbies that they got from anime and manga, like cosplay, but you had premieres. So with Car Capture Sakura, the OVA that was released was premiered at Anime Expo. Anime Expo premieres a lot of stuff. They invite the producers of the work to North America to talk about it. That didn't happen this summer. So what did we not see this summer? Because it was not an anime expo. Um, I don't know. I don't work there. Um, and so <laughs> yeah. what are we not seeing in terms of engagement with the community? And of like, mm. how do you do cosplay virtually? Like, that's a difficult one. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you could try doing it on Zoom or, or, or Teams, but uh, it's not the same, right? So, um, uh, yeah. And I think, well, with movies, what they've been doing, I think, is so some of them have kind of gone direct to streaming, which is saying that we're going to skip the theatrical release because the theaters are closed anyway and just go straight to Netflix or like Disney Plus, for for instance, versus doing or actually releasing a DVD copy right away rather than waiting, um, you know, eight weeks or six weeks or whatever after the theatrical release. So maybe... Um, with, with anime, similar process where some of them are delayed. I know some movies are delayed, for instance, and then some of them have been just straight to streaming rather than just being displayed on cable networks, um, perhaps. So it is a big change. Um, and we haven't really seen uh, probably this large halt of, of global connectedness, commerce and travel since probably World War II. Um, I would imagine maybe, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I can think of because I don't even remember the last time that everything was shut down. Yeah. I, even with World War II, if we, we think about that shut down, but we had mass movement of, of people as soldiers and so forth. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a very um, unique experience we were going through. And it is affecting every single aspect of our lives. And so, of course, it's going to affect how people consume, produce, enjoy, and all those things related to anime and manga. And uh, again, it's been terrific having you on here, Rain. I've, I've learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have, have also learned a lot about localization uh, and even some of the fundamentals of, of anime and, and manga. It was it was a very great discussion. and. Um, any final thoughts you want to leave uh, the listeners with to ponder upon? I guess if you haven't read manga and you haven't watched anime, I would hope that you would give it a try, that there are stories for everyone, and that um, I hope that I will see you all virtually, or rather, I hope I will not see you all virtually. I hope I will see you in person at Anime Expo very soon. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you so much.